Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people and others in the autism community to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. Each day I am reading online about what's going on in the autism and neurodiverse communities. Some might say I'm obsessively reading about this. A couple months ago, I came across the National Disabled Law Students Association website and definitely wanted to learn more about what they do because I believe neurodiverse lawyers can be great assets to so many law firms out there. So I'm pleased to have AJ Link join us today, who is the co-president of the National Disabled Law Students Association. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. AJ, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you making the time. I'm really excited. Thank you. Wanted to start out by learning where does your story in the autism community begin? My, my story is kind of um, chopped up into pieces. So I wasn't diagnosed until um, I was an adult. I was 20 or 21, uh, maybe even 21 or 22. I can't remember now. Um, but when I was younger, I did have um, some behavioral, I guess, I don't want to say issues, but I, I, I had different types of behaviors. And so my parents um, had some preliminary tests done. And... I was um, I was fine. I was on the line, but passable, and so it was just like not a big deal. Um, but I didn't find this out until after I got diagnosed um, as an adult. Um, and then after that, um, I, I wasn't super involved in the autism community or the disability community or the neurodiverse community um, until a couple years after my diagnosis when I went to law school. So I went to law school when I was uh, 27, I think. Um, so there was a, a six or, or seven year gap um, from my diagnosis to the time that I got involved in disability advocacy. Um, and the only reason that I happened to get into disability advocacy when I went to law school uh, is because I was self-advocating and I noticed that there wasn't anyone else advocating for neurodiverse, neurodivergent um, or disabled folks. Um, and so I kind of just started doing it for me and for other people um, and eventually, uh, I met other advocates in D.C. and nationally, and that's kind of how I, I got into the community. Mm -hmm. Now, you got your Doctor of Law, and now you're in the process of getting your Master's of Law from the University of Mississippi? Yeah, so I graduated from GW in the spring with a JD, and now I'm hopefully going to graduate from Ole Miss with an LLM uh, next spring, so spring 21. So, yeah, fingers crossed. It's been a bit different the past year um, working virtually. Um, I've, I've appreciated it for the most part. It's, it's a lot better for me because I don't have to go in person and interact with people. Um, but we'll see. It's getting kind of tiresome, so I'm, I'm ready to just be done with school in general. Mm -hmm. Now, have you always known that the law was something you wanted to pursue? No, I didn't, actually. Uh, most of my life, I said I didn't want to go to law school. Um, I'm a 
bit different than most folks who go to law school and their story is I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I've always known I wanted to go to law school since I was a little kid. I actually didn't want to do it. Um, and then my life was kind of just in a rut, I guess, and not really going anywhere. And so out of, I guess, boredom or looking for a change, I said, why not? I'll try law school. Um, and as I was going through the application process, I figured out that uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I did want to be a lobbyist and a policy advocate. Um, and so I went to school at GW to focus on policy. And it just so happens that I got into disability advocacy while I was there. Mm-hmm. Now you're wearing a, a shirt that I, I find in music. It says suits suck. Um, I'm not so against the suit. It's just the tie that really bothers me. I can't do the ties. I, I so um, for those that know me, um, I always wear um, my I guess my ideals on my clothing. So I wear shirts and hats that represent how I feel. But this is actually from Entourage. It's from the show Entourage. Um, so it's not technically talking about lawyers. It's talking about. <laughs> Um, and managers, but I still think it's cool for the legal community because of the obvious um, language of, of being a suit. Right. Now, I'm always interested in neurodiverse people teaching neurotypicals about their experiences and how they can truly be allies. You founded a group while at George Washington called the Atypical Student Society, which was for atypical law students and neurotypical allies. I'm interested, what do you think these allies took away from being part of the group? Awareness and education, uh, just being able to understand that there are various kinds of perspectives and various ways to approach situations. I think a lot of the allies who were and the years below me um, have able been able to incorporate some universal design type things um, at, at the school, um, which are still there after I left. So I think that's really cool, and, and that they're incorporating disability and neurodiversity in their uh, diversity and inclusion advocacy. So when they're looking to make changes to make the university or the institution more inclusive, um, at least they're thinking about disability now as well and including that in their thought process. So I think um, that's really helpful. Uh, and I hope that they take that education, knowledge, and awareness that they have now and they extend it out past law school to other communities that they may be involved in and other projects that they may be working on. Mm-hmm. What do you think, like, there are some things that allies think they're doing to be allies, which is really not helpful at all? Uh, I think the most obvious thing for me would be the language usage. So when they Mm -hmm. say uh, differently abled or uh, different abilities or mentally different or special, special needs, I guess, is a big one in the education world. Um, I think just the education around language when they're trying to be nice and helpful and uh, respectful, but their lack of education about the terminology is not a barrier, but it's a little hiccup or a blip. Now, you're studying interplanetary human rights at the University of Mississippi now. What the heck is that? (laughs) 
<laughs> so, um, in all honesty, it, it's something that I made up, but something that I'm trying to get to catch on. And so, what I'm passionate about um, is human rights, but specifically human rights in outer space. So, how we're protecting future individuals who maybe are traveling in space or have settled somewhere in space and what rights that we are giving them and, and how we're protecting those individuals. Uh, and so for me, I think it's, it's a unique opportunity to kind of reframe the way that we focus on human rights and why human rights are important. Um, and because of my disability background, I, I like to incorporate disability policy in there. So, um, I guess my research and my work and my writing focuses on starting with disabled people instead of adding disabled people last at the end, like it's commonly done. So mm -hmm. normally it's like, how do we include minorities? How do we include women? Um, how do we include person people? And then at the very end they say, Oh, well, what about minor or disabled folks and how do we make it accessible where uh, my research and like my policy proposals and things that I work on. So you should start with disability, understanding that when you make things as accessible as possible for disabled folks, you make it as accessible as possible for everyone else. Right. Um, and so it, it's uh, starting with inclusion, um, a wide breadth of inclusion instead of building inclusion piecemeal, I guess. So that's what I focus on. So is it similar to where like if you make places more public places more sensory sensitive, it helps everyone? Yeah, universal design, right? So yeah. um, when, when you add a ramp, say, that, that's the, the most visual example for, for folks, um, for wheelchair users, um, yes, that makes it accessible for the wheelchair users, but sometimes some folks don't want to go upstairs, right? Um, they prefer the ramp. Or there's, mm -hmm. there could be someone with um, an invisible disability or a non-visible disability where going upstairs May hurt right there could be um, folks with arthritis or some type of joint condition or, or anything like that right where the ramp is just easier and you make it more accessible for all of those folks um, by putting it there hmm. I'm wondering as a neurodiverse uh, person in law as an attorneys do you think that they get pigeonholed or pushed towards disability rights law all, all the time uh, I'm <laughs> I guess I'm fortunate in that I don't want to be a practicing attorney, uh, which I guess is, is nice, but all the time, especially when they're vocal advocates. Um, and I, I don't want to complain too much because that's how I am where I am right now is because I was constantly advocating and then people were giving me new opportunities to advocate and to do work. And that's kind of what's led me to where I am right now. But, but I would certainly say that a lot of times disabled folks are, are pigeonholed or narrowed into doing disability rights law when it's like, no, they, they just want the law to be more accommodating, right? They're, they're disabled attorneys who do big law, who do transactional law, who do um, freedom of speech law. I mean, disabled attorneys are all over the law. They may not just be out um, or self-identifying. Um, I think it's kind of the same issue we're seeing now in the larger cultural movement where you're seeing a lot of black professionals and professionals of color who are pigeonholed into D&I positions simply mm -hmm. because they're minorities. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's their skill set or even where they want to be. You know? Right. 
So thinking about space law, where do you see kind of that intersection moving into the future between between disability law and space law? So for me, I think dis disability law and um, I, I call it crip legal theory, which is essentially critical disability studies for the law um, and how I, I'm transitioning that. Like I said kind of earlier, I think it should be the foundation, right? I think when you think about access, inclusion, universal design, all these principles are mainstays in the disability community, right? Most disabled folks know about these things, but they're not really super incorporated into the larger world. And so for me, like I said, disability rights, disability law, disability justice should be at, at the foundation of any system of, of space law that we're doing, right? Because we want to be as inclusive as possible and making sure that we're protecting and including all folks, all individuals who, who want to participate um, so, for, so for me, it's the foundation. That's what I do in, in my writings. That's what I try to say in, in the, the seminars, the webinars, what, whatever we're doing now as a society. When I'm, when I'm talking to folks about how they should be thinking this, I'm always preaching that um, disability should be the first thought, right? Disability inclusion and accessibility should be the very first thought. And then you go from there um, just to make sure that we're not leaving folks out and leaving folks behind. Whether maybe fair or not, I the legal industry probably has a, a reputation as a slow adapter to change. Uh, therefore, for neurodiverse lawyers, those in law school or thinking of possibly studying law, there might be a question to disclose or to not disclose. It's a personal decision, but what do you think are some of the important factors to consider when making that decision? Well, first thing I'll do is say that um, folks should check out the Indalsa website, ndlsa.org. Um, there's a blog post up there by one of our members, when it, and it kind of talks about disclosure, and you're right. Disclosure self-identifying is, is deeply personal. It's something that a lot of thought goes into. I know that for me and for a lot of the members of, of the board of Indalsa, it's important to openly self-identify to show others that it's okay and they're not alone. And I'm not saying that everyone should do that or everyone should be forced to. And you're completely right. Um, the legal community is slow to change when it's cultural change, but when it's legal change, they, they change rather quickly. Um, and so I, I would say that um, lawsuits and threatening lawsuits can, can be um, a <laughs> friend. But uh, towards a larger cultural aspect, I think it's a real shame that um, people feel like they can't disclose, especially the folks who strongly identify as disabled, right? I know that some disabled folks don't strongly identify as disabled. They don't kind of want to be attached to that label, and I completely understand that. Um, but for the folks who want to and are scared, um, I, I would say... Their stigma may still be there. Just know that there's a community waiting for you to support you. Um, and also has done a ton of great work creating and fostering community. Um, we have LinkedIn groups. We have Facebook groups. Um, our community is close to a, a thousand students, I think. Uh, we don't have a tally, but I, I think we're up to 25 member orgs at 25 different universities uh, around the country. Uh, we may be over that now. I, I, 
I have to check. That's actually part of my job. I need to check that. Um, but disclosing within law school or in the legal community, um, you shouldn't have to. But if, if you're worried about doing it and you don't know if you'll be supported, just know that there are, there are quite literally hundreds of people waiting to support you and help you in any way that they can. Now, you're currently the co-chair of the National Disabled Law Student Association, or like, or like you said, the NDLSA. Um, I guess your, your mission is to eliminate the stigma of disability within the legal profession and foster an environment where law students and lawyers are easily able to obtain the accommodations necessary to achieve career success. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges for, for those once they graduate? Our organization is rapidly evolving and changing, but our mission is still staying the same. So part of that evolution, I guess, is a change in title. I'm no longer the co-chair. I'm one of the co-presidents, and we have this weird setup, and there's so many people, and we're growing so fast, and it's actually an issue. But I think for, hopefully for those students who are graduating and about to graduate, they know, again, that they have a support system and we're willing to advocate for them, but also, and this is me personally speaking, um, and, and not for the organization, um, but I think it's important that those who graduate um, let know those who are still going through law school or attempting to go through law school, kind of let them know that, that, that they're there to help them and that they've been through it and that there's advice and there's counsel um, and there's information available. I don't want to say that disabled attorneys have a responsibility to help disabled law students because I think that's a, a, a huge stretch. But I do think that the work that Indalsa does is so important. We have so many people on our staff who have already graduated but are still helping and fighting for disabled law students because they care and they know it's important. I think that's that's something that I really value about our members, our organization, our community, that they're, they're so giving of their time and their experience and their knowledge. Um, and their energy but that's able to show people who are going through that there's a space for them to be advocates later on if they want to um, to help other students like they've been helped and hopefully um, we can we can change a few lives I guess I guess I did misspeak that you're not a co-chair you are a co-president but I'd rather be called a co-president than co-chair anyway <laughs> At one point, I was a co-chair, um, and, and we like went through evolutions, and we like we re- re- reorganized and restructured, we changed titles, and we tried to become more uniform. Um, and so, I don't think you misspoke. I just think <laughs> we're just uh, rapidly evolving and changing as an organization. I guess that includes nomenclature. Yeah. Now, how can uh, people learn more about you and NDLSA? NDLSA.org. Um, they can email me personally, aj.link at NDLSA.org. They can also just email the organization, info, I-N-F-O, at NDLSA.org. Um, but then we have social media. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram. We have a Facebook page, LinkedIn page. Yeah, just know that there are people available. Um, we're, we're willing to help. Give us hopefully no more than a week. We'll always be able to get back to you. Uh, I know for me personally, if you reach out to me personally, I'm usually good about emailing get back to you within two business days. Um, 
so yeah, there, there are tons of different ways. If you don't have social media, don't have any of those platforms, uh, I guess an email. Now, thinking about kind of the future of the legal industry, what do you think law firms are missing out on if they aren't very strongly considering hiring neurodiverse lawyers? I think that there's a huge swath of talent that they're missing out on, right? Well, the, the first, I, I need to backtrack. Um, law firms employ disabled lawyers and they employ neurodiverse lawyers. Whether or not those folks are open and out about it is a different story. But I think... And this is something that I, I, I push as well is actively recruiting disabled students, actively recruiting disabled attorneys. Um, because one, these are general, genuinely bright, smart, intelligent individuals. But two, especially for neurodiverse um, attorneys and individuals, having that different perspective, um, that, those different ways of problem solving and approaching situations can be really helpful in cases and litigation and negotiations or mediations or anything like that. Just having those different perspectives can be so vital to your business, right? Um, and there's some studies. It's Tara Cunningham, specialist earn, specialist earn USA has done studies um, showing the value of incorporating neurodiverse folks into your employment and the value that they bring on um, but I think you were talking about pigeonholing folks um, into disability rights while uh, firms should be really wary of recruiting, say, autistic attorneys and thinking they could be supercomputers or that they love math or they love right. spreadsheets or something like that. Because I know autistic attorneys that have told me like that's what firms have hired them for and expected from them. And, you know, that's just not the case. Not, not every autistic person is like a... a magic computer brain like it's shown on um, television and movies. Um, some autistic people just like to be left alone and can work for five hours straight uninterrupted, right? And that's their thing and that's um, the skill set that they bring. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's definitely a benefit. I don't, I don't think it's harmful. Um, we've touched on accommodations, but usually to accommodate um, neurodiverse or disabled folks is the, the cost is extremely negligible. Someone should, uh, or, or the, the price is about $500, the average price, I want to say, with, meaning that a large majority of that is, is a lot less. So to accommodate these folks when hiring them is actually um, extremely negligible from a financial standpoint. Do you have any advice on how law firms can go about in recruiting uh, neurodiverse attorneys? Yes and no. This is something I've been working on for three or four years because it's really difficult because you don't want to expose or out disabled individuals who don't want to be out, right? So you can't mm -hmm. say this is a recruiting fair for disabled students only, right? Um, but what you can do is include it in your recruitment materials, uh, start uh, an affinity group. Most law firms have affinity groups for all different kinds types of identities. Um, start a disability affinity org. Um, talk to the student organizations at law schools specifically. 
So like I said, we have close to 25 member orgs, but I'm sure there are other disability orgs that we, we just haven't got to or haven't discovered yet. Um, talking to those orgs about those members, providing special opportunities to those orgs in ways that you maybe provide special opportunities to groups like BALSA um, or NALSA or PALSA or things like that. Um, highlighting disability in your events, um, going out of your way to show that you're disabled friendly, um, I think goes a long way in terms of showing disabled students that you care. And I think that would, that would definitely help with recruitment. Absolutely. Well, AJ, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks so much to AJ for the conversation and for dealing with my technical difficulties early on in the interview as my electricity went out for the first couple of minutes, which is a big problem when you're talking to someone trying to conduct an interview on Zoom. Other than learning how patient AJ is, you can learn more about him and the National Disabled Law Students Association by checking out the link in the podcast description of this episode. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Amy Lee Buksh, about being the founder of the Lily Pads Project, which makes reusable organic cloth pads made with love for anyone who has a period. Talk to you then.